This is a conversation with poet Wendy Trevino on the relevancy of contemporary poetry in a dying climate change world, how poetry can both be a source of strength for struggles, but at times also be not enough in the fights to come in global social movements, and how Wendy feels about the future of art and struggle. It's a fascinating conversation with an accomplished poet who is kind enough to read one of her poems at the end of our interview. For more conversations like this with global artists and thinkers, you can go to our back catalog on the Arts of Travel podcast. We're on Apple, Spotify, and other platforms. And for print articles, including some of Wendy's poems that she was kind enough to share, you can go to our website, asiaarttours.com. Here's my interview now with poet Wendy Trevino on poetry, struggle, and the global crises we're all facing, and if art will have a role in helping us think through them. I hope you enjoy our conversation today. My name's Wendy Trevino. I am a person who writes poetry. Um, I put out a book of poetry. My first full-length collection came out in 2018. It's called Cruel Fiction, and I published that with Commune Editions. Uh, before that, I put out a chapbook with Commune Editions called Brazilian is Not a Race. Um, in addition to, right, well, I mean, I should say that I write, um, but I write specifically in relation to movements and th like thinking about movements and, you know, sometimes there isn't one that I'm in. So I'm, uh, so I'm thinking about other things, but always, I'm always thinking about movements basically. So um, that kind of describes the kind of writing I'm interested in. I've talked to Jody Malamed, who's an academic, who's sort of an abolitionist. And she's been pretty transparent that like, studying politics and doing politics are two completely different things. And I'm wondering if that's been your experience with poetry. There is a tradition in poetry that has like, you know, some connection to radicalism, but it's, it is um, not something that you're going to necessarily access. I mean, I would say that you're almost certainly not going to access it through the university, <laughs> you know? Um, so yeah, I, I, got interested thinking that I would automatically find a bunch of radicals and was completely disappointed by the time I went, you know, into the program myself. Cause I mean, I didn't really know what was happening at Iowa. It didn't seem like anyone was radical, but you know, I didn't, I didn't really know. But by the time I got to Davis, it was very clear to me that that wasn't why people were in a program. They're really boring, actually, like very, very boring people. <laughs> like, I don't know if that I'm no, I'm just gonna say it. like it was very boring. You know, the people were very boring. They they were reading, but like they they didn't want poems to be political. That was the other thing. That isn't so important to say. People didn't even want political poetry at that time. Like definitely in Iowa and in Davis, like people were really really reticent about any kind of political poetry. For 
the MFA in particular and the art form of poetry, are there structural constraints um, that are really, uh, number one, pushing people into thinking they need to pursue prestige over sort of um, publishing with these small presses? And how do you think sort of that pursuit of fame or that there's only this sort of 1% of poets, I'd imagine, who can make enough, you know, uh, off their poetry uh, to survive? How do those sort of twin pressures of sort of the pursuit of status and the, you know, uh, pursuit of fame, how, how is that wrapped up in uh, professional or famous poetry? Well, I would definitely say that um, in the university, the, you know, the first thing I realized in terms of the other students that I was there with is that they were, they were wanting to, you know, become professors. And, and I think there's this idea, and I definitely had it, that, you know, I would, I would go into this program and I would have all the time in the world to read and work on my writing. And that's just not really how it is because there's these requirements that you have to fulfill. Like Iowa is unique and they let you do whatever the hell you want there. Like you do get to use those two years to just write and you can do anything, but like most schools aren't like that and you have to go to classes and, and those classes may or may not be anything that you're interested in. And for me, they weren't, I wasn't interested in that, like the poem, the poems that I was being required to read. And I wasn't interested in the fiction I was being required to read. And the, I mean, it, it is a lot of work, you know, and then on top of that, I do think that, well, I mean, if you get into, you know, the, the long term of it, you're bogged down with doing a lot of things you don't want to do you know, and you're completely removed from any kind of like um, organic uh, community that comes together around poems and other activities, you know, like it, you really are just writing in isolation. Um, and so you might like, there's certain circuits that are kind of like in place for you and it, you might get money or whatever, but what in is interesting about that whole way of doing things is that you could be someone that quote succeeds in like as in becoming a poet and have very few readers if any and that always has struck me as like just very interesting and so no like the zines are very much a very different thing from what usually ends up being you know like the life of the poet in academia you know talking to people in portland a little bit it seems like that's the same thing they don't give a fuck you know, what a, a famous uh, magazine or article or NPR host is saying, you know, the, how they're doing political education is really on the ground. And I, I'm just wondering if that you think, if that's a construct that you think really needs to be punctured. There's just, you know, uh, controversies about controversy in art these days, but there's very little actually about is this art meaningful to the vast majority of people and I'm wondering how you've seen that play out specifically now um, that you're a more established poet and that you have a better sense of what actually matters to people in terms of their own politics. Um, could Is there something to be explored in this tension of everyone, a select group of people is trying to make us all care about Verso or Jacobin and, and so on, when really what's changing people's minds is just one-on-one -on -one conversations or reading, you know, something that you printed at Kinko's 
five minutes before you came to the rally. I mean, I definitely, the stuff that has gotten me the most excited has absolutely been um, I the things that no one's like heard of. Like the, some of the poems that I would have never thought at the time, you know, they would end up being as popular as they were. Like they're in like the tiniest zine, you know, put together with staples kinds of, uh, I don't know, they're, those are the kinds of zines they were in initially. Um, but it's tricky, right? Because one of the things that I've seen happen too is, um, well, it's like that, that stuff can just become aesthetic, right? To where now you, you know, there's this kind of like a DIY quality. I'm not saying that this is widespread, but that like you can just adopt a kind of aesthetic and it gets completely stripped away from anything meaningful. Um, I think something that I, when I first started uh, talking to more people, or I guess, you know, doing readings and um, being asked more questions as someone who writes poetry about poetry, I like one of the things I would come back to again and again is that poetry doesn't really accomplish the things that people I was like I was told it would accomplish, you know, and it was very important for me to get to the point where like I cared less about writing the poems than I did about being part of a movement, you know. Um, but over time, the other thing that I've kind of come to is it's just that's the important thing that people understand that that question of what poetry can do can never be separated from what you do. So it's, you know, it's not so much about any kind of aesthetic, it's what are you doing? Are you in the streets? Are you with people? Like, is this what you're spending your time doing or is are you spending more time just like writing the poems? Um, I'm not saying that you're a bad person if you spend more time writing the poems, but like the aesthetic of the DIY or whatever, like that, you know, that's just one aspect of what I care about, I guess. What um, is it about uh, multiculturalism within the academy and that strain of thinking of sort of, we need more Ethiopians at Google? With the, the controversy with the head of AI there where I said, you know, no, we don't need Google. Uh, <laughs> we don't need Harvard. We don't need DI. What, what Could you expand a little bit about your own thinking of that and for people who are unfamiliar with some of these more esoteric academic uh, feuds, what does that feud sort of look like? That this sort of this clash of ideas, and um, why would someone like a Kathy Park uh, Huang uh, be such a vigorous uh, proponent of the institution? Is this something that's based uh, altruistically, or is it in a self-interest that also perpetuates some advantage or benefit for herself? I think that in her mind and in the mind of a lot of these people, those two things are not separate. They see themselves as doing good work, doing work to advance like people of color in general, even though the people of color that are like benefiting most from what Kathy Park Hong is doing. And I think Kathy Park Hong is also this kind of person of color as well, is these are like of a specific class you know, um, they don't really deal with that. Instead, they're like, you know, these fucking white people are a problem, all these white poets, fuck the white poets, blah, 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 white poets, white supremacy. But the extent that like what they're going to do to fight it is they're going to boost POC poets. 
just like completely un like so the big cr like critique of academia like i remember when there was this this um group in 2015 that came to the fore for a while called the mongrel coalition against poetry and the mongrel coalition against poetry was made up of um <clears throat> basically you know uh black and mostly non-black latin american people but um uh when they started you know they started doing a bunch of like kind of trolling of a lot of white poets you know they were involved in the kind of takedown of kenneth goldsmith but there were a lot of people involved in the takedown of kenneth goldsmith and i'm glad he was taken down um but like, you know, their whole thing, they were just like against white supremacy. They were tired of like the white supremacy and poetry and Kenneth Goldsmith gave like this great kind of way to open that critique up. And I remember sending um, uh, email to one of these people at one point. And specifically I wanted to, I was saying, like I was hoping to eventually see this critique go past Kenneth Goldsmith and like white poets. And like, I don't know, for instance, this person is, is at a, he was at a university that was really like, is notorious for their kind of landlord. I don't know landlord, but like basically they're very much involved in like gentrification in that city, you know? Um, and I brought it up and they just kind of blew me off, you know? But like, in, that's the thing with that kind of um, those interventions in poetry by POC poets in general, the ones that are in the academy, at least, they tend to like stop short of doing anything beyond wanting a more diverse canon, you know, not being critical of the, the creation of anything like a canon and the infrastructure re that's required for such a thing, not being critical of academia, not being critical of universities and their places in the cities, you know, where they exist, no criticism of like what they're standing on. We're like, in the end, you're supposed to kind of ignore the fact that the people who are like doing this and, you know, they're, they're tired of being um, not treated as well as the white poets, you're supposed to ignore the fact that they are also an elite. What is your sense of the modern poetry that would either present an actual sense of voice of what it means to be working class or living under sort of the, the hellscape of climate collapse and you know, neoliberal capitalism and what is this, uh, the battle for the soul of poetry? Is, is poetry going to be able to comment uh, and, and offer a voice for what we're going through? Or is it going to sort of continue in this vein of just trying to perpetuate itself as an institution, survive by any means necessary, by not criticizing, you know, the world and the world ending around us and who's ending the world? Um, so I guess a quick way to ask, ask that is, is poetry honest, you feel, uh, the stars of poetry, is it able to speak honestly about what we're going through? I definitely have seen, like I said, you know, in the last like 10 years, there's been a huge like shift in what people think is interesting and therefore relevant, like what keeps poetry relevant. Um, and so like, and 
I, when I say poetry relevant, I'm talking about like, you know, the, the kind of fossils, uh, I don't know, like something like poetry magazine, like, you know, poetry magazine suddenly in the last 10 years gives a fuck about politics, you know, which it didn't, you know, um, but of course they're going to present like, you know, only what doesn't really challenge it as in the, the magazine itself. Um, but I'm not saying that none of the poets in there have ever produced anything that's honest. Like I, I'm, I'm actually guessing that they have, that there's been some that have, I don't really read that stuff, but like, I, I believe that they, that they have. Um, but I think where you're going to find it is among people that are actually on the ground doing things and tons of people write poetry. Poetry is such a cheap thing to that you can do. Like a lot of people can write poems. All you need is like a pencil or a pen and a piece of paper or, you know, your, your iPhone or your Android. Oh, you don't need a lot to write a poem, you know? And then at least my experience in my experience in like uh, struggle and in movement spaces, people love poems, you know, like they really do. So if you're like in the middle of, you know, like I'll give an example. Um, in 2012, uh, some of us took over this closed down library in East Oakland and tried to open up a library there again, right? It didn't last long at all. But when we were trying to hold it open and uh, keep the cops from, you know, just tearing our stuff apart, uh, we had a reading there, you know, that was not my idea. <laughs> like, this is, this is a common thing that people who I like, who aren't necessarily known as poets will do. Readings are like an easy thing to do to kind of keep something open. And I've done, you know, more since then. Um, it's, I think that that's where you're going to find interesting stuff. You know, I, I love the idea of Fanon, of sort of action through struggle. And I think uh, to continue my theme of being dissatisfied with the U.S. left, there's a lot of uh, study without action. I used that phrase once in an interview where a lot of it is just writing, writing, writing. And it's like, okay, we get it. Things fucking suck. We sort of have to take these risks. And I'm wondering how you've sort of balanced that or come to peace with that or how have you seen that as a poet? Because I'm sure you've encountered beautiful, brilliant voices that maybe didn't participate in direct action or didn't engage in, in struggle in a, in, a, in a way that's dangerous in terms of uh, encountering police or carceral violence, but were able to still articulate beautiful anti-white supremacist or anti-capitalist or uh, anti-patriarchal critiques. So how have you sort of come to terms with that uh, or, or um, philosophized about that um, throughout your, your recent life? I mean, one of the things that I definitely, um, I think, yes, I completely agree. I have definitely found uh, really great poetry that I think articulates something important about, let's say, you know, uh, white supremacy or capitalism, you know, et cetera. Uh, and one thing that I would say that they tend to have in common when it's not necessarily talking about, I, I don't know, because it's not that you have to talk about particular things. I don't really know what those poets have been doing, but I I will say that 
there's always like a sense of um, not pretending to be uh, like any kind of solution, if that makes sense. You know, like there's there's a kind of uh, in the poetry some some acknowledgement that the poem fails to really do anything except articulate um, either a problem or one's relation. Like the poem is to sort out issues, but they cannot be completely sorted out by a poem. So the stuff that I like, that's what I see in it. So this honesty about what a poem can do and what it can't do. I don't believe in God, but are you able to sort of see in your work or the work of other artists you admire building a spiritual vision, quote unquote, to sustain you for that revolution? So I guess to rephrase that, do you see artists as, uh, do you see artists as sort of being able to articulate the vision of the revolution? And then the harder task for me, do you see them being able to articulate this vision of when I'm being tortured, when I'm being shot, that I feel it was worth it, that I that I can turn to that idea in those moments of suffering and, and sustain myself and, and feel at peace. I always, like I said, would focus so much on, you know, basically writing's not going to do it. You got to be in the streets. You got to be in the streets. Poetry doesn't, you know, isn't going to cut it, all of that. And once uh, Cruel Fiction came out, and I kind of went to different places to talk about it. I actually went to Evergreen, talked to some of the students, and it was the first time I actually felt okay with the idea that the poems might have helped in some way. Not mm -hmm. helped in, you know, like, not gonna cause a rev or whatever, but for people that were in shit, you know, like actually in the middle of trying to make something happen that, um, it was helpful. Like it helped them think through some of the issues that came up when they were in the middle of it, you know? Um, and that was, that was the first time I, I didn't know that anyone felt that way, but to hear that, I actually, it made me feel really good. Um, and it also made me feel a little more comfortable with the idea that like, you know, poems can be helpful to people that are also doing things that, you know, you, you were kind of like, trying to work through in the poems. Um, so I do hope that they're helpful in that way. I, I, it's, it's hard to talk about this stuff because I definitely, you know, I feel like those poems in Pearl Fiction and Brazilian is Not a Race, like I, I feel like they are very connected to activity. And I kind of don't know if I'm going to ever be able to produce that number of poems like that again, I hope so, but it won't happen unless I'm in, in it again, you know, the way that I was in it. Um, and I mean, like sustained, like, you know, things, things changed over 10 years in, in the Bay, or at least, I mean, they have changed 10 years in the Bay. Um, I don't want to, I don't want to create anything that isn't going to be connected to the streets. Um, and that might actually mean not writing, to be very honest. So how do I balance it? I'm not going to be writing if, if it isn't connected to like 
anything. You know what I mean? Like, I don't want to become somebody that's just in a room writing. I, I think things are going to collapse a lot quicker than we're expecting. And I don't necessarily know what role art will play in helping us find peace or catharsis. Are you feeling more optimistic about art, about providing an articulate critique that allows what, you know, Hebert Marcuse called the great refusal, that, that fucking moment where people stop going into the office, stop, you know, listening to the pop song and just say, no, like this is not the way the world is supposed to be? Or is it sort of like that slow bath where, where you know, where we're just gradually sort of the boiling frog, I guess. Um, how have you sort of seen some of that, this abstract nature of my questions? How is that playing out on the ground with the artists you're working with? And how do y'all talk about it when you're just sort of in your groups and your safe spaces, if it's not divulging anything? At least from what I can tell, like, you know, I'm sure that caught up in the, you know, people are doing tenant organizing, people are uh, definitely doing work to like improve the situation, you know, somewhat in some ways for like people in the streets. Um, and I'm sure that, you know, I mean, those people are creative and they, and they're going to produce some of those things, but to be honest, like, I, I don't know that we're going to have time to make a lot of art <laughs> just looking at, at what's a, like, I don't know exactly what's ahead, but I agree with you. I think things are much worse than we even understand, even now, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and it just feels like there's so much, like, exhausting and maybe very, not maybe, it, it is exhausting and very dangerous. Like, what's what I imagine in front of us. And so... I, you know, I don't, I don't know what art's going to be able to do in that moment. Like I said, I, I, I do hope that, you know, if I'm able to produce something that it like helps people, you know, at least be brave, you know? Um, but I mean, yeah, it's going to be really, really rough. And the P I feel like the people that are going to be producing art pretty regularly are going to be the people that have like the, as Joy James would talk about, you know, they're in the uh, gated communities. And the rest of us are going to be, you know, doing a lot of other things. And and maybe, you know, I, I don't think that you need to, like, have all that time to write a really good poem. I know that you don't. Um, but you might see them a little less frequently. And maybe they don't have that kind of a platform. So maybe the, the art that we are going to end up seeing um, is still largely going to be the isolated poet. And, you know, it can really really be beautiful but I just I don't know that I don't know I've never to be honest had had a very optimistic view of what art could give us to be honest I just think it's very interesting this idea of how do we build a roadmap where we actually feel like we're walking together as opposed to I think a lot of white western leftists who have a megaphone on a platform and are saying you need to walk this way um so i i that i i just struggle with that and um like how do you speak of a fig tree ross gay you know knows how and you when you rediscover all this beauty that you've been taught to ignore your whole life it's very powerful um uh, well so you know kind of what you're saying about not feeling atomized and not feeling um 
like feeling connected to something larger. Um, I'm trying to like find a way to articulate all this, but you know, so I would say that one of the things that I've learned here, um, I, first of all, had no idea that there were, you know, all these people that were, I, I lived here for a few years. You know, there's, there's a lot of people that came to the Bay in, you know, the late aughts and like early, you know, 2011 or whatever, because specifically they were like anarchists or they were, you know, punks or, you know, but they specifically were coming here because there was a certain, um, uh, they, they wanted a revolution, you know, <laughs> like there was, and there's like this political, uh, this concentration of like politicized people in the Bay and there has been, I, but I didn't know any of this, you know? And, and when I started like going out into the street, um, I was shocked to, to find all of these people. And what's been amazing is that, you know, it is like a, it, it's amazing to go into the street and, and do all these things with thousands of people. And then some, you know, like some of those people afterwards, like come together in these smaller clusters and you see them produce art about what just happened. And there's something really wonderful about that. And like people, you know, people, I remember when I, I first uh, wrote the, the Santa Rita poem, you know, uh, and I read it in front of, you know, of some of the people that I was, I, I don't, I didn't know them that well and I still don't know them that well, but you know, we had all been to, uh, to Santa Rita together. So in 2012, uh, 408, I think, or something like that, that 400 plus people were arrested in Oakland um, when they were trying to take over a building um, to kind of push, occupy, pass like, you know, uh, mm -hmm. just, the, just the public parks or public, you know, uh, outside areas, they wanted to actually take a building. And so, or they, we uh, wanted to take a buildings. We were, you know, the whole day was spent trying to get something. And then at the end of the night, like we were just kettled and they got 400 plus of us. And we were in, you know, Santa Rita for like, I forget how many hours, but like, I mean, it was, it was over like three days. Um, and you know, there was people of all ages, of all races, of like, you know, genders. I mean, just, there were so many different kinds of people there. And it was, I mean, like, you know, it, I always want to be respectful of like the fact that, you know, that was very little compared to what a lot of people go through. Um, you know, but it, it, it was, it was a little bit traumatizing. I won't lie. You know, it was, it was scary. And so after, after I got out of jail, uh, a friend of mine actually said, you know, you should write everything down so that you, you like it, later you can come back to it, you know, maybe like write about it or whatever, but you want to, you know, you're going to, you're going to forget a lot. So you want to write stuff down. So I basically just like listed everything I could remember and read that as a poem. And turns out it was the poem. And, um, so it's in a it's in that book and the first couple of times i read it i read it in front of people that i'd gone through this with you know and it wasn't all of them but they were in the room too and seeing these like you know women in their late 40s and early 50s like crying because they were remembering the stuff 
it's really powerful, like powerful to me that like there's, you know, um, there's a connection to people uh, that I went through that with that like, we're not forgetting anytime soon. And then, you know, later, um, many years later, you know, I ended up in uh, San Quentin talking to, uh, you know, uh, incarcerated people that were there and they had read Santa Rita and they really loved it, which meant the world to me because I, I, you know, I, like, I was very concerned. And even back then I like have a, a kind of disclaimer at the beginning to make very clear that this is, you know, this is not supposed to represent anything except like what I saw that day. And like, you know, there's still this, this stuff, there's stuff going on there to this day that I don't, you know, I don't know anything about, but there's people there now, you know, um, and these and the incarcerated people that I talked to about the poem were, were so kind and just talking about how like that when they read it, they they remembered what how they put it like they remembered that loss of freedom. And that's what they saw described there. That's pretty powerful. I, I feel very uh, blessed because I didn't I just had I went through some things and I wrote about them and. I ended up meeting a lot of people who felt like those poems were for them and they were like, I didn't know who my audience was, but I'm really glad to have found them. None of us need to be George James or George Jackson. And I, I feel like we all sort of need to get over that. Like we don't all need to have, you know, these singular idiosyncratic voices. We can just be and be working together. And uh, I think, you know, going back to earlier talks about fame. I think that's something, at least for me, I've had to really process and I think is not talked about enough. What you're saying is absolutely correct. And I like very important to me when it comes to thinking about poetry and struggle. Um, and part of why it's hard for me to answer some of the questions that you asked earlier too, is because for the longest time, you know, I people would talk about what is the role of the poet in like struggle or, you know, in these movements. And I was insistent that, that the poet actually had no role. And the big reason for this was because I didn't, for me, at least, like I didn't know what I was going to be needed for. And I think it's really important to always have that because you might actually be better at like, not, not that you're not good at writing the poems or whatever, but like in the moment, there might be something else that you do that is way more necessary and you need to do that. That's the thing you need to do then, you know? So like, I, and, and it came up for me because I like, one of the first uh, kind of, I saw, I very quickly stopped doing conferences. Like once, you know, I, um, kind of became a little bit more known as someone who wrote poetry, I quickly realized that was not a good idea to be doing conferences, but I went to one and um, I was in it. And I, like the day before the last, the last time we met, I, I was driving down the street at night, there was a shooting, you know, and I like stopped the car. I went back, you know, I was like trying to figure out like how to be helpful. And the next day, this this question of like the poet's role and the role of language and all of that and like struggle came up and I brought that up and basically was like, you know, they don't if you're if you end up in a situation like that, they don't need your poem, <laughs> you know, like and they don't what they need is like your abilities 
to like stop the bleeding or to call someone or to be calm and calm everyone down. You know what? We don't know what it is, is a thing. And so it's important to not like value that role of, of like the poet or the writer so much that you don't see what you're needed for. And, and um, yeah, so part of the reason that I think I have a hard time answering some of the questions around like poetry and struggle is because that's that's always been the most important thing to me. And you're right, like in that moment, you know, I have definitely been in a situation where I felt like, damn, I wish I was a different person who could like do more against fascists, you know, like I wish I was stronger. I wish I even had more experience. I couldn't, to be honest, I couldn't even tell the difference between like the white people and the fascists, like, you know, the I couldn't. And that was like a real, a real problem. But the people, you know, like my my partner, other people who had had experience that I didn't have, they could immediately. And I found myself just like standing there not knowing what the hell to do. Um, and I didn't leave. I will never leave. But like I I didn't know what to do. And so, you know, the first thing that came to mind after this was all done and I, I realized that like, you know, <laughs> I didn't do much for anyone was uh to start researching these guys, you know, and turns out I could do that. But like at every single point of like trying to participate in these things, I've had to ask my, that, myself that question, like, what can I do here? You know, like what, what could I do that would be the most helpful in this situation? And off, like, you know, there's so many communiques, so many like pieces of writing that people um, who go into the streets and, you know, do a thing, um, they'll put out a lot of writing. And I can honestly tell you that that writing has almost always not been me. I am not the writer in those, in those situations. I am not the writer. And I don't, I, I don't necessarily not want to be or want to be, but like, that was not the thing I could do best. And I think it's important for people to always have that in their mind. Like, just because you write, that doesn't mean that that's what you should be doing in struggle. And if you do write, I think a way to summarize a lot of what we've talked about is, can your abstract be put into the concrete? So if you're making criticisms, if you're making revolutionary claims, will you be there to try to enact them? Or are you willing to try to see those things realized? If you don't think they can be realized, just say, hey, I'm a grifter. <laughs> <laughs> just say, hey, I just got to fucking survive under capitalism. I didn't want to work, you know, at, you know, at a retail job or whatever. So this is what I'm doing. But if you do believe those things, um, that, those are the things that I find really beautiful in art. People who are willing, like a Fanon, uh, hopefully like a Wendy Trevino or Matt Dagger Margosian or Joy James, uh, that when push comes to shove, we're willing to put our abstract as artists uh, into the concrete. Um, so I think that's a good note to end on, Wendy. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Would you mind uh, closing us out with a, a reading of Santa Rita? Okay, thank you so much for having me on this podcast too. Like I really, that was really helpful to me too, just having that conversation. Um, and yeah, I'll, I'll finish this up with um, a poem called From Santa Rita, 128 to 131. And it starts with a uh, disclaimer. It says, a list of things remembered as I remembered them and in no way to be taken as a complete account of what happened there then, 
or what is happening there now. I was detained approximately 54 hours, 47 of which I spent in jail. I spent 47 hours under bright fluorescent lights. I was cold approximately 43 hours. I was moved seven times to five different tanks. I spent no more than 15 hours in a tank near a door with a small rectangle of glass through which 21 women and then 27 women could see barbed wire and light then dark outside. I was fed six times, five stacked lunches, which included two slices of stale bread, two slices of slimy bologna, two cream cookies soaked in bologna juice, one pack of salad dressing, mayo, one packet of mustard, one packet of a calcium mix and one orange and one hot meal, which included maybe turkey and definitely beans, a side of cooked carrots, some sauce, a salad, a cube of cornbread and a cube of cake. I used a toilet no more than five times. I slept no more than four hours. I was denied birth control. I heard someone with epilepsy was being denied medication. I met two people with serious illnesses who were denied medication. I watched two people go through withdrawal. I watched one woman use one toilet at least 10 times in no more than two hours. I spoke to one woman who confessed she was having suicidal thoughts. I gave one back rub. I received zero back rubs. I spoke to three people on the outside. I spoke to three trustees. I spooned three women. I spooned one woman I had known previously. I saw two women volunteer to stay inside longer to make sure two more women wouldn't be left alone in their respective tanks. I saw one woman refused release to make sure her friend would have a friend in the tank. I met one woman with an abortions get babies to heaven faster fanny pack she likes to wear when she visits Texas. I saw five slices of bologna stick to a white wall. I heard harmonizing coming from a tank two times. I heard one person recite one poem to two pigs. I heard I had one welt on my back. I saw at least five bruises on each wrist. I heard one woman suggest not admitting injury unless it was severe. I heard, I met two women who chose not to report feeling ill for fear of being put in solitary confinement. I met one woman who had been released from Santa Rita no more than two days before. I crushed on one woman. I was one of at least five women crushing on one woman. I met at least one woman in a polyamorous relationship. I met at least one woman who had recently had sex in the woods. I met at least one woman who had recently had sex in a dressing room. I met one woman who suggested we start a website to replace the OO camp. I met three women who were still in high school. I had at least five pigs completely ignore me. I heard at least five pigs lie at least five times. I heard one pig compare the impact of the people the pigs had to process on the system to 400 marbles going down a drain three times. I heard one woman praying. I saw one appeal to the version scratched into the wall of a tank. I heard two women were put in solitary confinement. I heard one woman was put in solitary confinement for scratching a word into the wall of a tank. I saw Occupy scratched into the wall of a tank. I heard one woman was placed in solitary confinement for banging on the door of a tank to get a pig's attention. I saw at least two women kick the door of a tank at least five times in a row. I saw one woman be forced into a tank. I heard one pair of cuffs. I heard one pig tell one woman if she had a problem with not getting a phone call, she should call her lawyer. I heard one pig say, this isn't about the constitution if I don't like your face. I heard one man banging on the door of his tank. I heard one pig tell one trustee not to answer my question. I met two women who requested that NLG contact their employers to let them know they would not be making it to work. I met two women who were worried their arrest would lead to them losing their job. 
I met one woman who lost her job as a union organizer when she was a no-show after being arrested at a demonstration. I met one woman who works as a union organizer. I met one woman who works in San Francisco's financial district. I met one woman who can crack a house. I met one woman with family in Spain. I met one woman who teaches elementary. I met one woman who said the, the games the pigs were playing with us were the same ones she plays with her kids. I met one woman who teaches yoga. I met two women who worried their car would be towed. I met one woman who worried her boyfriend would forget to pay her parking ticket. I met one woman whose boyfriend runs a comic book store. I met one woman whose mother had bailed out Huey Newton. I met at least two women who were afraid they wouldn't be able to get into a college class. I met at least three women who were menstruating. Bridesmaids came up one time. I was one of at least two women who had seen bridesmaids. Krayshawn's Gucci Gucci came up one time. I heard one woman sing one big room full of bad bitches. Aquaman came up one time. I saw at least five drops of fresh blood on the floor in the hall. I saw at least seven drops of dried blood on the wall of a tank. I heard the riddle, what is brown and sticky, two times. I saw at least 15 wads of wet toilet paper stick to the air vents of three tanks. I watched four women throw wads of wet toilet paper at the air vents of three tanks. I heard one woman admit she was waiting to be released to take a victory poop. Kali came up five times. The 99% came up one time. I heard a, one pig call herself part of the 99%. I heard one pig say the system had crashed, that we'd be inside at least 48 more hours after we'd been detained 52. I heard one pig threaten a mentally ill man. I heard one pig make fun of a woman praying. Dante's Inferno came up one time. Why am I being detained was chanted at least 10 times. Phone call was chanted at least 20 times. From Oakland to Greece, no pads, no peace was chanted at least 10 times. The Diva Cup came up two times. I heard one woman call the inmates who worked at the jail trustees. I saw 13 people I'd previously met inside. I saw three people without shoes. I saw two people in protective custody. I saw two baloney faces. Staying positive was equated with preparing for a class action lawsuit at least three times. And that's it. 